Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Jesse and Carol. What a blessing. Did you guys appreciate that? Just a great message and just great, uh, just great, uh, great singing. So I want to mention a couple of housekeeping things here. First of all, our second service is growing uh, and we're almost at capacity again. So I just want to remind you of, of some parking uh, reminders. Uh, we, you can park in the grass in the back if you need to. And also the barbecue restaurant uh, down the road, if you, that, that has offered overflow parking for us as well. It's not that far to, to walk back up. Now, I, are they open on Sunday? Does anybody know? I don't think so, which is a good thing because, you know, you might pull in there to park, take a whiff of the aroma and think, you know what, forget Hickson, I'm going down here to have some ribs. Uh, but anyway, they're closed on Sunday, so you can uh, park down there if you need to. Uh, but appreciate you coming out. We also, of course, have an 830 service, which is not as uh, full, so plenty of parking at 830. So if you're a morning person, you can maybe uh, consider coming to the early uh, service. But uh, we are continuing our look at the book of Nehemiah, and I'm calling this today Living in the Land of the Easily Influenced. Uh, you know, uh, if you want a, a testimony of how easy it is to sway people, just look at uh, recent elections. You know, someone, someone has said an election in America is where 100% of the people think 50% of the people have lost their minds. And that's probably a good way to put it lately anyway. Of course, my view is 100% of the people pretended to vote but think they really voted. But you know my view on elections, but, uh, so we won't go there. Uh, but there is a real dearth of discernment uh, today. And in our study of Nehemiah, we come to an example where he just really exemplifies true discernment. Before we get to that, I want to take some time to really define what discernment is and, and talk about it in light of our culture today. You know, the hallmarks of our culture uh, today are, uh, you know, pretty obvious. We've got thing. it's a postmodern age. Uh, some people even say post-Christian age, which may very well uh, be true, but we've got the abandonment of certainty. You know, people today don't like to really settle on a decision, on an answer. They're quite comfortable with the gray. In fact, if you give a decisive viewpoint on anything, you're considered intolerant or unloving. Uh, people have a lack of conviction and principle. Their worldview is often comprised of a variety of inputs and sources that are self-contradictory. They don't have a true north. They don't have something like the Bible, to go back to again and again and find the definitive ruling on certain issues. People, therefore, are easily swayed, easily influenced. I call it bandwagon Christianity because, sadly, in this uh, days of the apostate church, even many Christians who, although they may know the Lord, who knows, they may have at some point trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, they clearly are not viewing life through the lens of Scripture and, therefore, they're quickly able to jump on bandwagons. It's really an age where discernment as an art is gone. People just don't have it. I've told the story before through the years of a situation I had with a lady that was the headmaster of a Christian school, and she knew of my background in academics and my love for theology, and so she said, hey, I want to come show you these two new books that I've chosen for the theology department of our school. Now, these are, you know, high schoolers, right? And so I thought, well, this ought to be interesting. Um, and sure enough, she, she said, hey, I've got this one book by Charles Ryrie called Basic Theology. And I'm thinking, yes, she, she picked well, she picked right, you know, uh, because she had told me, oh, I just went on the internet and I found, you know, some books that seemed popular and, and conservative and 
So I'm thinking, man, this is great. Uh, what's the other book? And she goes, oh, I got this other book on theology by Wayne Grudem. Now, if you know anything about Wayne Grudem, uh, both of these guys are conservative, by the way. They believe the Bible. They believe in inerrancy. But they have completely polar opposite ways of understanding the Bible. Charles Ryrie is a dispensationalist. Wayne Grudem is an amillennialist and a you know, guy that does not believe there's a future for Israel, does not believe that salvation is totally free. You don't have to do anything to get it. Uh, he's a Calvinist. So uh, they, he would say he, you don't do anything to get it, but he, in practice, says, nope, you can't, you can't even believe. God has to give you the faith, and you've got to persevere in good works or you never had it. So, I mean, completely opposite. And I tried to explain that to her, and she, she got this look in her eyes like a lot of people get when they hear me preach. Their eyes just sort of glassed over, and she almost was like, you know, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And I could just tell, she, in her mind, it was done. The decision had been made. She checked it off her list. She had made these. They were bestsellers. So how could they possibly be wrong? But that's an example of this lost art of discernment. People today will buy anything that comes with a free journal or a free bowl of soup or whatever it comes with. And they don't take the time to read on the back of the books and see kind of the theological framework of the people that are writing the book. And as I've uh, pointed out, uh, Shakespeare was right when he said, not all that glitters is gold. And so uh, the Bible has a lot to say about discernment. We want to answer the question, whatever happened to good old-fashioned discernment? Uh, Proverbs talks about how if your priorities are out of whack, then you're going to find joy in the wrong things. He says, folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment. In other words, if you don't have discernment, self-destructive behaviors and tendencies are going to seem, you know, like a joyous thing to you. But he goes on, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. And this is an example in Hebrew poetry of contrasting parallelism. Whenever you see the, the word but, it's an indication that the, it's a couplet, and the first line repeats the main message of the, the second line, repeats the main message of the first line, but in opposite terms. And so this idea of understanding is a synonym for discernment. Discernment really does give you uh, the ability to understand and see things uh, clearly. I, I came across, across a, a quote. I could not ever find the original source of it. If I could, I would have given them credit. But this person said, there are three kinds of actions, those that are good, those that are bad, and those that are doubtful. And we ought to be most cautious of those that are doubtful, for we are in the most danger from them precisely because they do not alarm us. And yet sometimes they lead to greater problems, just as the shades of twilight gradually turn into darkness. And that just struck me as being well-worded, that uh, when we don't have clear direction, sometimes we proceed forward anyway and miss the red flags because they weren't as clear. You know, some things are obvious, right? We don't need, you know, discernment to see the obvious, but discernment comes into play when things are doubtful when you're just not sure. Do you know how to recognize that uneasy feeling that's telling you to slow down or wait or maybe even stop? If you don't think that discernment is crucial, then you don't understand the Bible cover to cover. Because throughout the Bible, we see again and again this discussion of discernment. In fact, before we dive into Nehemiah, I want to take the time to show you in the New Testament, there are six different words that are translated in our English Bibles, discernment. Now, I don't, you know, do a ton of 
Greek and Hebrew stuff on the screen when I'm speaking. If you followed our teaching, you know that every now and then when it's relevant to really understanding the meaning of a text, I'll show you a, a Greek word. But I'm going to do a little bit more of that than usual this morning to make this point. The Bible has a lot to say about discernment. So as I said, there are six different words in the New Testament. Let's just run through them real quickly. First of all is diacrino. Diacrino, it's used 19 times in the New Testament. That prefix there, dia, or D-I-A in the English, uh, indicates the nuance of during. So the idea here is to differentiate or evaluate or judge or make a distinction during a decision-making process, and uh, in other words, in the moment, if you will. Jesus uses this word when he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 16, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. That word discern there used twice is dia. In other words, you don't know how to evaluate properly what you're looking at when it comes to the signs of the times. The next word is used 16 times, and it's very similar, but with a different prefix, anachrino, instead of diachrino. Ana, that prefix A-N-A in English, implies in sequence or along the way is the idea. And it means to question or examine closely, to investigate, and it implies a more prolonged a period of time. And this is the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when he says, uh, the natural man, the unbeliever, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That word discern there means anacrino. Again, the idea here is to investigate. Well, if you're not a believer and you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, then you cannot investigate spiritual things because you're spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. And you need to be made alive. And how are you made alive? By faith alone in Christ alone, as Jesus told Nicodemus. Remember, in John 3, he told Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. You need to experience a spiritual rebirth, be born from heaven. And then he goes on to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has everlasting life. Once you get saved by faith, now you have the Holy Spirit who comes up and takes residence. And by the way, it is faith that is the instrumental cause of regeneration, not the other way around, like Wayne Grudem would say, for example. And so these folks uh, that know the Lord, if you know the Lord, uh, then you have the Holy Spirit. And then you can begin to discern, to investigate, to, to closely examine spiritual matters. It's the same word, by the way, that interestingly is used in Acts 17, verse 11. Now, Plum Creek Chapel is a part of a group of 57 churches called the Berean Fellowship, a, a loose affiliation of like-minded churches, uh, and we get the name of that association from Acts 17, 11. If you were with us when we uh, went through the book of Acts recently, then you might remember this verse. Talking about the Bereans, they said these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Remember, the Bible was not written in English. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so that word searched here is the same word that we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 2 translated discerned. It means uh, to search out and investigate closely translated a searched, anachrino, that same word. Going back to 1 Corinthians 2, uh, again, 
uh, we see this word used multiple times. We already looked at it in verse 14, but it's used again here. But again, it's translated differently. I don't know why the New King James translators chose to translate it uh, this way. And I knew the editor, a guy named Art Farstad, who translated the, the original Greek into the, what became the New King James. Uh, but for some reason, anachrono here is translated judges. He was spiritual. Remember, he said these things are spiritually discerned, anachrono. Now he says they're spiritually judged, uh, anachrono. But wait a minute. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. Remember, we talked about that, I think it was last week. You know, absolutely, multiple times the Bible commands us to judge. You absolutely better judge. What Jesus was telling the Pharisees is don't judge hypocritically. Don't be judging others for the speck in their eye when you've got a great big log sticking out of yours. But clearly the Bible tells us to show discernment, to be able to differentiate. And that brings us to the third word used 21 times in the New Testament. And this is the word dokimazo. It means to test. Uh, to find out is the idea here. Jesus, again, uses this word in a different context, but he uses the same analogy of the weather. In Luke's account of the Gospels, this is a different time setting, but Jesus is using the same analogy. But this time, instead of speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to the multitudes. And he says, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you say the south wind, uh, when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it you do not discern this time? Dakimatso. How, how come you can't find it out? In fact, again, the New King James English translation translates dokimazo exactly that way, finding out in Ephesians 5, when Paul tells all believers, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the world. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. If you have trouble finding out what the Lord wants you to do, that means you're having trouble with discernment. You're not very discerning. The fourth word for discernment in the New Testament is only used one time. It's the word eisthesis. Eisthesis means perception or discernment or insight. And Paul tells the Philippians, the only time this word is used, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That's eisthesis. And the fifth word is diachrisis, used three times in the New Testament. It has the nuance of having the ability to distinguish and decide. The key emphasis there being on distinguish. The writer of Hebrews says, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. Now, he's using a metaphor here about physical age with spiritual age. And to be of full age means to be mature. And he says, remember earlier, verse 12, he, the writer says, By now you ought to be teaching others the spiritual truths of the faith, but instead you've come to need milk. You've regressed in your spiritual maturity. And then he goes on to say, Those that are mature are those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern, a diachrisis, distinguish between good and evil. And then finally, the last word that we see in the New Testament that's translated discern is kritikos. Kritikos is a cognate in English where we get the word critical. It means to have a capacity to judge. And, uh, you know, again, 
the devil loves to deconstruct language and take words and twist their meaning. So today, when you hear the word critical, you immediately think of it in a negative context, right? If someone is critical, it means they're being mean and insulting. But that's not what the word originally meant. To be critical meant to constructively criticize. It was very common in the Greek world to just say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to judge. I'm going to evaluate. I'm going to check out what you're saying. I'm going to fact check, right, and, uh, and make sure that what you're saying uh, passes the truth test, kritikos. And it's interesting, the only time this word is used in the Bible is in Hebrews 4.12, where we read that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even, even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner, a kritikos of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, the Bible, the Word of God, has the perfect ability to rightly discern, to rightly discern that within us which longs for the flesh from that which longs for the Spirit. In other words, the better you know the Word of God, the more discernment you're going to have. You cannot separate the truth of God's word from discernment. And unbelievers and the secular realm, secular humanistic reasoning, <clears throat> they try to go through life and discern based on just feelings, you know, this just doesn't feel right. Or based on something they read somewhere or something they heard somewhere that resonated with them. That's going to be like a straw in the wind. Sometimes you may get it right, sometimes you won't. But if we anchor our discernment to the Word of God, it's perfect. It has a 100% track record. It's never been wrong. Sound discernment is inseparably linked to the Word of God. And prayer, by extension, because praying is just basically agreeing with God that He is God. We are not. We need His guidance. We need His Word. Well, how does He give us His guidance? Through the Bible. Prayer is our way of talking to God. The Bible is God's way of talking uh, to us. So discernment is crucial. Without it, we might be led astray into endless troubles and quagmires and dangers. Proverbs tells us to cry out for discernment. Solomon says it this way, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. The Old Testament Hebrew has a lot to say about discernment as well, which we won't take the time to dissect that. But Solomon goes on to say, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Again, the Word of God is our barometer that helps us separate foolishness from wisdom. So with that quick summary of several verses that use the English word discernment based on the Greek when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What can we, uh, what conclusion can we draw about discernment? Well, discernment, I would summarize, is this, the ability to correctly and confidently identify right from wrong, good from evil, wise from foolish, and helpful from harmful. Whatever happened to good old-fashioned discernment? Well, as we pick up our text in Nehemiah chapter 6, I invite you to turn there 
uh, with me, we find once again Nehemiah proving to be a model for Christians today, this time in the area of discernment. He demonstrated superb uh, discernment. And I'm not going to read the text because we're going to look at each verse one by one as we come upon it. But I want to give you, as a, what I see Nehemiah exemplifying here, five keys to discernment in the life of Nehemiah. And the first one is this, priorities. Priorities. If you don't have priorities in your life, understanding what's more important than the next thing, then you're a sitting duck to be led astray, to be easily influenced, especially today. So let's pick it up here in verses 1 and 2. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshub the Arab, remember those were their enemies, the enemies of, uh, of Nehemiah, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates. He wasn't quite finished. He's going to finish the wall next week. I mean, he finished it 445 years ago, but from our study and our sequence of events, we'll get to him finishing it next week. But it was almost done. It was getting close. And these enemies that had already reared their heads, remember we've talked about them before, enemies from without and enemies from within last week, uh, they were getting desperate. And so they conceived of a plot. And Sanballat and Geshem said to me, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. And Nehemiah said, oh, no, I'm not going there, as we're going to find out. But because, and here's where the discernment comes in. They thought to do me harm. Now, before we see why he was able to have that discernment, uh, let me just give you some background here of this, what was really going on. The plain of Ono, where they were trying to coax him out to for a meeting, was about 25 miles west and a little bit north of Jerusalem. It's where the modern-day international airport is located, uh, east of Tel Aviv. Uh, it was kind of a no-man's land at, in Nehemiah's day between uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and Samaria in the northern kingdom. Uh, if Nehemiah had accepted this invitation, he would have been many miles from Jerusalem for at least two days. It was a one-day journey. And, of course, this would have given his enemies the chance to attacked Jerusalem in his absence, and who knows what they would have done to him. So how did he respond? Verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? See, he suspected foul play right away because what they were asking him to do was not consistent with his priorities. Why would they want him a day's journey away from Jerusalem. Uh, from there, he knew he couldn't oversee the work, which was his number one priority. Remember, he had been grieved about it. We read about that in chapter 1. He had prayed about it, and then he instituted a plan, a very deliberate, intentional plan that he took time to formulate. And now he was getting close to the end, and he wanted to finish strong. That was his priority. His eyes were fixed on the goal. And, uh, and, and he knew that, that, that this plan would be off track if he took a little hiatus to, to go after these you know go with these enemies who had summoned him, not only that but you know by outnumbering him because you know Sanballat and Geshem would have had their entourage with them, they could have done harm to him. They could have waylaid him. Who knows? And we're going to see as we read on that Nehemiah turned down four repeated invitations to this meeting because he understood that 
Serving God was his first and greatest priority. I'm doing a great work. And sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. Now, in this case, he, he recognized right away that he smelled a rat. He knew this was his enemies and something was up. But similarly, priorities can help us be distracted and show discernment when other things that might not be evil in their intention can still end up distracting us from what God wants us uh, to do. Uh, Peter says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we need to understand what we're doing and where it fits in God's plan. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. If what you're doing is not for the purpose of glorifying God, don't do it. I mean, you, we need to think about that. And it's so easy to get distracted, uh, but discernment means having priorities. Paul said in the uh, Colossians, in one of his prison epistles, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And if something comes along that's going to distract you from that, uh, then you need to show discernment and not do it. If our priorities are in order, it makes it easier to discern anything that conflicts with those priorities. Secondly, we see Nehemiah showing perseverance. Perseverance. Now, this has already come up a time or two in our journey uh, through Nehemiah, but perseverance means stick with it. It's hard. It's not easy. There's going to be difficult times, but persevere through the task. And one reason discernment is so rare is because it's hard. It's hard to show discernment. It's hard to persevere. Poor discernment is often the result of intellectual and emotional and spiritual laziness, right? It would have been easy for, uh, you know, Nehemiah to give in. Remember, you know, four times they sent this same message to him. Now, I don't know about you, but as I try to put myself in Nehemiah's shoes, I have to be honest and say I, I would probably have been more like a twofer or a threefer. You know, after the third time, I'd be, all right, fine. Put down my, you know, axe and shovel and whatever I was helping with, and, and you know, I'll be back, guys. And I just, just to do it, just to get, get it, get, stop pestering me, you know. Uh, but not Nehemiah. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. They came, and every time he answered them the same way. I'm doing a great work. He persevered. Uh, and so then his enemies shifted their tactics, which we'll get to in just a second, and they fabricated this, these accusations against him and sent an open letter so that everybody could, could see and that, that their purpose was to try to undermine his, the people's confidence in Nehemiah. But perseverance is a key to discernment. Uh, that's why Paul said, watch, stand fast in the faith. Be strong. I mean, be brave, be strong. We've talked about perseverance a lot, but let me just reiterate. A perseverance does not mean that you've got to keep doing good works until you die or else you'll end up in hell. <laughs> that's what Calvinists teach. If you don't continue in the faith until the moment you die then you were never saved to begin with. That's the fifth point of Calvinism. I deal with it extensively in my books and my writings. It's not putting words in their mouth. It's exactly what they say. 
R.C. Sproul said if he were to deny the faith on his deathbed, he would be in hell because he means he was never saved to begin with. Now, he's in heaven today. Thankfully, his false view of perseverance didn't keep him out of heaven because he knew the Lord and he was a great champion of the faith. He just had a wrong understanding of the gospel. But perseverance is something that all believers should do. But thank God in heaven above that our eternal destiny is not dependent upon our ability to keep on trusting God the rest of our life. I mean, if we're honest, there are times every day when we show a lack of faith. Jesus frequently uh, rebuked the disciples for their weak or lack you know, of faith. Our faith should be strong. It should persevere. But even if we are faithless, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And I had a, a lengthy dialogue by email with someone this week, a, a lady who was absolutely upset with me that I would suggest that you can, at some point in your life, a Christian might deny the faith and still be in heaven. And, and I had given examples in an interview that I did with Mary Danielson on Stand Up for the Truth of John the Baptist, Saul, many others in Scripture that did not end well, yet they're in heaven today. And I gave several theological passages. Uh, and they, she, this lady took me to task on every one of them and just could not understand how in the world I would teach that, and she even sent a letter to Stand Up for the Truth and said, you need to never have this guy on your program again because he's teaching people that if they trust in Christ one time, they'll be in heaven for sure. And, of course, Stand Up for the Truth, the producer knows me well, and he said, yeah, we, we told her, you know, have a nice life, but uh, not exactly. But, but anyway, I, I, uh, I'm not always gracious. You know, if you catch me at a, you know, when I'm in a bad mood, uh, I'll... You know, I, I can be kind of mean, but I've really tried to learn over the years to be gracious. And so I was really gracious in my initial response. I said, thank you for reaching out. Uh, I'm sorry you disagree with me. I answered a couple of her quick questions just with quick sentences. And then I said, you know, she had cut and pasted, I don't know, 15 verses that she thought proved that you can lose your salvation. Uh, and I said, I deal with all of these in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, and I'd be glad to send you a free copy if you'll just send us your address. Well, then she wrote back and said, I'll pass. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she didn't want the free book and continued to hammer home this point. I just can't believe that you would suggest that someone could uh, be saved simply by trusting in Christ one time. You've got to keep on believing all the way to the end. If you don't keep believing, man, you're going to hell, you know. And so I just basically this time said, look, uh, this will be my last response. Uh, I wish I had the time to dialogue with you further. But it's obvious that you really are struggling with free things. You won't even accept my free book. But I'm promising you salvation is free. Grace is absolutely 100% free. Free, 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 free. I like to repeat that a lot because in this age, it makes people uncomfortable. Some of you sitting there right now might be uncomfortable that I'm saying salvation is absolutely free. You know how much it costs you? A big fat zero. You don't have to commit your life, promise to be good, turn away from all your sins, pledge allegiance to God, make Him Lord, put Him on the throne of your life, surrender your life. None of that. If you could get to heaven by doing that, Jesus did not need to shed His precious blood on the cross. Salvation is nothing in our hand we bring, simply to the cross we cling. It's a free gift. A free gift is not a bilateral contract where we bring something to the table and God brings something to the table and we shake hands and agree on it like it's a contract. Salvation is a unilateral gift. And all of these things that this lady was talking about are matters of discipleship and spiritual growth and serving the Lord. And that's why Paul says we should stand fast in the faith. He wouldn't command us to do something if it were automatic. And this lady just insisted it's automatic. 
If at any point in your life you turn away from the Lord, then you're not saved. Because in her mind, salvation is an agreement. We promise to follow God, and in exchange, if we keep it up till we die, He'll give us heaven. But that's not grace. Grace is absolutely free. We are justified freely by His grace. Romans 3.24 Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life. It's free. Now, it cost God His own Son, and it cost Jesus a cruel death on the cross. But it doesn't cost us anything. We can't earn it. So, perseverance is, is critical. Paul himself talked about persevering. Notice he said, not that I've already attained. I'm not there yet. See, we're not going to ever attain practical perfection this side of heaven. We can have positional perfection because of the blood of Christ imputed to us His righteousness. But we're never going to be practically perfect. Even Paul, after he got saved, wasn't perfect. Read Romans 7. That was after he got saved, and he was really struggling with sin in his life. But notice what he says, I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize. Perseverance. It's not guaranteed, but it is desperately needed. And discernment is marked by a willingness to persevere and not give in when the going gets tough. And then the third thing we see is poise. So priorities, perseverance, poise is a key factor in discernment. Uh, you know, unlike me, Nehemiah didn't react, he didn't get emotional, he didn't get defensive. He just, you know, responded to this letter. Now, we're going to look at the words of the letter in a second, but let's skip ahead to his response. So remember, they tried to coax him out so they could waylay him and distract him. He rejected. So then they created this plan where they're going to send this fake letter with fake information about him to everybody. And he said to them in response, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Just a simple flat, one-sentence denial. Not a reaction, but a poised and confident response. And then he tells us, the reader, why he was able to show such poise, because he had discernment and he was able to see right through their plan. They were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. In other words, by spreading these false rumors about Nehemiah, he was going to undermine the people's confidence in their leader. Um, and then notice Nehemiah prays there at the end. We see a lot of these little short prayers. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah understood uh, the importance of prayer. We're going to talk about that in a second. But poise, uh, poise is uh, the key. Uh, Daniel uh, tells us about three other uh, Jewish uh, brethren that understood what it meant to have poise. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing Nebuchadnezzar. He was threatening to throw them in the furnace. Uh, and uh, if they didn't bow down and worship the brazen image. And so he, they said, uh, we believe God will provide for us. We're not going to bow down. Um, even if you threaten to throw us in the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, Nehemiah, uh, you know, showed poise, and so did these three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, again, I try to put myself in their shoes. First of all, 
I don't know if I would have been able to done it to do it. I don't know how that my faith is that strong. And so praise God, we have this example and many others of men and women in the through the, through history of faith that stood strong in the face of intense persecution. But even if I were able to try to say the right things, the look on my face would have betrayed my heart. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I I really I'm pretty sure I think God's going to probably, you know, save me and rescue me, but I don't, I'm not really going to worship you, but, you know, God, God's good. I, I think God's good, don't you? I mean, you'll see. God, I'm pretty sure God's good. That kind of would have been my response. These guys just, oh, listen, King, we want you to know we're not going to serve your God. Full stop. Poise. Poise. So as we look at Nehemiah, this is kind of a side note, but I see uh, three ways uh, to keep your poise. First of all, don't be tempted by intrigue. Remember the first section, you know, they sent him this mysterious invitation four times. Hey, come out. We got something we want to talk to you about. And uh, they didn't tell him what it was. He, he used discernment to realize this is a plot. Uh, so the intrigue did not uh, succeed. And then they, they, they used innuendo with this uh, letter. So don't listen to innuendo. Uh, this letter from uh, Sanballat. And listen to what this letter said, verses 6 and 7. It is reported among the nations, and Gresham also says, you know, I love how Sam Ballot throws that in there. And by the way, Gresham agrees with me. Yeah, of course he does. He's your co-conspirator, you know. But anyway, that you and the Jews plan to rebel, Nehemiah. And according to these rumors, you're rebuilding the wall that you might be their king. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now, these matters will be reported to the king, so come, therefore, and let us consult together. In other words, we've got you right where we want you, Nehemiah. And notice it was an open letter. Very uncommon in that day in the ancient Near East. It would always be sealed so that only the recipient could read it. But they intentionally made it an open letter because in that day, you know, you didn't have email. You didn't have, you know, the regular mail. You didn't even have the Pony Express. I mean, you didn't have anything. It was just kind of passed, circulated around, and eventually someone would deliver it the final messenger to the king or whoever it was going to. So since it wasn't sealed, everybody who came across that letter, guess what they did? Oh, what do you got here? You know, and they read it, and then they go, oh, look, did you see, did you know what Nehemiah is doing? Right? Of course, it didn't work because Nehemiah had integrity, and the people knew he had integrity, and it just didn't pass the smell test to them. Uh, you know, when someone has integrity, it's, you know, rumors and innuendo don't uh, stick. So, you know, Nehemiah and, and the people of Israel were not drawn into the fray. And when you find someone uh, making false accusations, don't dignify the rumors with a response. Or if you do, because sometimes you have to, then keep your poise. Keep it short and not emotional. Nehemiah didn't let this threat intimidate him. And then, finally, don't give in to intimidation. Uh, don't give in to intimidation. He wasn't going to be bullied. So uh, we've seen priorities, perseverance, poise, and now prayer. We see that again and again throughout Nehemiah. We don't need to you know, necessarily beat that dead horse. It's obvious. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We already saw it once when he simply added a sentence prayer. Uh, oh, God, strengthen my hands. We're going to see it at the end when he issued one of those imprecatory prayers that we've talked about a couple of times. 
Remember, he says, uh, may, My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid or tried to make me afraid. In other words, God, go get them <laughs> in precatory prayer. God, bring your judgment upon these evildoers because they're hurting your work. So he was a man of prayer. James, the Lord's brother, reminds us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And sometimes when you're facing a decision or a crisis or you need discernment, prayer is vital. The Word of God is vital. Prayer is vital. And uh, it's not always going to be as instinctive. Even if you're a mature believer and you're walking by faith and you're in the Word of God, sometimes life is complex and you need to seek wisdom from God and He'll, he'll show you. And then finally, principles. So priorities, perseverance, poise, prayer, and principle. Principle. Of course, to act on principle, you got to have principles in the first place. I mean, that's the problem in today's world. But what is your true north? And we see this uh, illustrated in Nehemiah with his handling of another plot. Uh, Shemaiah claimed to have received a prophecy from God. He was actually just a paid agent of, their, of the enemies, the Sambalat and them. And so he tried to scare Nehemiah into thinking that assassins were after him. And he needed to flee for his life and run into the sanctuary, the temple actually. And the text tells us, Afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. In other words, within the, the innermost part of the temple. And let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come and kill you. And Nehemiah said, should such a man as I flee? And, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. In other words, Nehemiah stood on principle because he knew that the Mosaic law forbid anyone but God's anointed priests from going into the holy place. They, the law provided that individual citizens could flee into the temple to, to grab hold of the horns of the altar for refuge and protection, similar concept to sanctuary cities and places today, which, of course, the liberals and secular humanists have taken and retwisted that word. Basically, a sanctuary city is today is a place you can go and sin and get away with it. You know, I want a place where I can go sin and get away with it. Right? It's called a sanctuary. But anyway, that's not what it meant in Nehemiah's day. But either case, Nehemiah said, first of all, if you think I'm the kind of guy that's going to flee to the horns of the altar, you don't know me very well. Bring it on. But then he said, nor am I going to go into the innermost part of the temple because I know the Word of God, and I know the law, and I'm not going to do it. I will not go in. And uh, he, he, he had principle. See, they were trying to uh, undermine his authority, discredit him. He goes on to say, Then I perceived that God had not sent them at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy, this paid prophet, against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And they were, he goes on to say, they were hired so that I would act this way and sin. And then they might have cause for an evil report. See, Paul dealt with the same thing many times in our 
book of Acts, we saw how the Jewish leaders were trying to discredit him by making up lies about him. Um, it happens a lot. It's a, it's a key uh, tool of the devil. The devil lied about God to Adam and Eve, right? Um, but uh, Nehemiah knew that this could not have been from God because God's never going to lead you to do something that is a sin, that is against his word. So that's where principle comes in to discernment. Compromise and a lack of discernment are close cousins. When you have no principles, you'll do anything. You'll believe anything. You'll follow any cause. You know. uh, so five keys to discernment. Priorities. If you have your priorities right, it's going to be easier to recognize something that's trying to distract you from that. Perseverance. You know, you got to be willing to make the hard decisions. See, a lot of times we know what's right to do. We have that discernment of distinguishing between right and wrong, wise and foolish, and so on. We just don't do it because it's easier to take the easy way out. Poise, don't react, don't get emotional, stand firm. Prayer, always seek God in the midst of all of it. And principle, have principles and then stick to those principles. So the takeaway this morning is just one verse that has been on my heart and on my computer screen every day for the last several weeks as I work on my next book, Spirit of the False Prophet, because it's the key verse for that, just like 1 John 4, 3 was the key verse for my last two books. But John tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And folks, i got to tell you, we're living in a day when it's like the perfect storm. There is a dearth of discernment, like I talked about at the beginning, the culture of our day. And yet we need discernment more than ever before. Because there are so many lies coming down the pike every day. And I think the world at large is surely ill-equipped to handle it. But sadly, the church is too. So stay in the Word of God uh, and... Uh, and run everything you hear through the grid of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Lord, we know you're a good God. You only want what's best for us, and you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in, in your word. So, Lord, I pray that you'd raise up godly believers who have the much-needed discernment in this troubling time. And, Lord, as always, we pray if there's one here that doesn't know you, that's not a believer, that today would be the day of faith, the day of salvation, when they place their faith and your Son and our Savior for eternal life. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.